Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about the Dead Sea Scrolls as reviewed in Paul and Palestinian Judaism. So Scott, last week, you know, we had a great discussion on tenetic uh, literature and what that looks like and, and some of the key components that E.P. Sanders was able to full, pull out of that. Um, before we jumped into Dead Sea Scrolls today, um, could you just give us a quick review on the definition of what is that literature and who wrote it and, and how did that come together? Yeah, uh, last week, I mean, we're looking at E.P. Sanders' monumental book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And I've often told students either read that book or his book, Judaism, Practice and Belief, to get um, a really good understanding of Judaism for Christians who need um, better definitions and clearer understandings of literature that they tend to use by way of abusing. So um, Sanders' book uh, is a monumental demolition of how Christians have read Jewish literature and have interpreted it. And I just saw something uh, today. I was, I was reviewing some of what we've been talking about. And this is how he concludes the Tanaitic literature, which is the literature of the earliest rabbis. He says, I have tried to develop two arguments at once. This is Sanders. The negative argument that one view is wrong and the positive argument that another view is right. Now, the negative view, the view that's wrong is about how certain kinds of uh, Jewish uh, scholarship about Jewish literature, uh, particularly coming out of Germany and Lutheran scholarship, was wrong. And the positive one is his sketch of the pattern of religion in Judaism. Negatively, I have not intended to argue that there is another view possible besides the view that the rabbinic religion was a religion of legalistic works righteousness in which a man was saved by fulfilling more commandments than he committed transgressions. That's a very typical understanding of Judaism. I hear it all the time. I hear it when I'm visiting churches from pulpits. I hear it uh, at times in echoes in very important and influential pastors. I hear it at times uh, in people like J.D. Greer. I've heard it in Tim Keller. I've heard it in Bill Hybels. I cannot tell you the number of people I've heard it in, that it is uh, Christianity is a religion of grace uh, or Christianity is about grace and the others are a religion or the others are about works or the others are not about grace. Uh, and scholarship has demonstrated that this, this approach is one-sided and mistaken. And Sanders has, says this, I have argued that that view of Judaism is completely wrong. It proceeds from theological presuppositions and is supported by systematically misunderstanding and misconstruing passages in rabbinic literature. I do not find such a view in any stratum, layer, 
of Tanaitic literature or to be held by any rabbi of the Tanaitic period. It has thus been my intention to destroy the Weberian view, which has proved so persistent in New Testament scholarship, and to do so in a convincing manner by showing that the evidence on which it is based does not, in fact, lead to the Weberian construction. Now, uh, most people don't read Weber, but they have used uh, Wilhelm Bousset, those who are scholars have. They have used, those who can read German have used, or if they read English, people who have used Billerbeck's famous, uh, Strzok and Billerbeck's commentary on the New Testament. More people have used Emil Schurer's History of the Jewish People, and even more have used Gerhard Kittel's Theological Dictionary of the, New, of the New Testament, often just called Kittel, where its view of Judaism is rooted in this false or, or misunderstanding of Judaism. And as a result, Sanders' book became very polemical as he sought to demonstrate that in the Tanaitic literature, a, a summary of what Sanders has called the pattern of Jewish religion. Now, here's something that's going on. Uh, I used to joke with my dispensational friends that the original arguments for dispensationalism that I grew up with reading the old Schofield Bible were all systematically disregarded or, or uh, proven wrong but that dispensationalism survived nonetheless. In some ways, some people have embraced much of what E.P. Sanders has done, but they still embrace a view of Judaism or a view of the human nature that is rooted in that old view of Judaism that will not be sustained by the evidence, but they've just hung on to that because it's Christian instinct. He says this, the pattern or structure of covenantal gnomism is what he calls uh, Judaism. It's a covenant made by God, election, the priority of grace, leading to the importance of following the law as the way one maintains one's status in that religion. He says the pattern is God has chosen Israel and given the law. Nobody questions this. The law implies both God's promise to maintain the election and the requirement to obey it. Why give law if you don't have to obey it? God rewards obedience and punishes transgression. That's as clear as anything in the uh, Old Testament. For the law provides for means of atonement, and atonement results in maintenance or reestablishment of the covenant relationship. So if you sin, if you break the law, you can be restored. You can cleanse the temple, as it were. Um or at least perform a sacrifice that will keep it from being polluted. And all those who are maintained in the covenant by obedience, atonement, and God's mercy belong to the group that will be saved. So this became Sanders' conclusion about what uh, covenantal gnomism was in the Taneitic period. And by and large, most people accept that. What they don't realize is that they have sustained some of those views of human nature seeking to earn merit with God that derived from a false or misunderstanding of Judaism itself. Okay, now I went on, 
I think I think I answered the questions, Chaz, that you wanted me to a- uh, answer. Yeah, well, you know, that's just so important to be able to know the foundation of that because it's just not in the Tanaitic literature. It's also in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha and the other examples that he looks through. He sees this consistent theme of covenant gnomism. And um, I have been thinking about it this week and um, we got a like an illustration to run by you to see if this kind of captures the idea of what he's getting at. And Be careful, kind of Chaz. I, I know, right? I'm sure at some point it'll fall um, apart. But um, when we think of like cheering for a sports team, let's say we go to Wrigley Field and our Cubs fans, it's not necessarily the cheering, the act of cheering for the team that makes us a Cubs fan. But because you're a Cubs fan, you would go and you would do that and you would cheer. And so in the same way or a similar way, um, the way in which the Jewish community viewed laws and um, the fulfillment of those is not the, the means to get in, but the the carrying out and the living in and the embracing as God of as as King and ruler um, over them, and so that they fulfill that through um, their works that God has given them in direction over that. Well, I mean, it's really important to see that that. Uh... Obedience of the law, and right now this is uh, this is a peculiar expression for me, because I'm reading John John Walton's new book, uh, The Lost World of the Torah, which really messes up that way of understanding law in the Jewish world, uh, at least in the ancient Near East. Uh, so, it is important to understand that obedience to the laws. Let's call them laws, the covenant stipulations of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Obedience was how people, in a sense, demonstrated or embodied their faithfulness to the God of the covenant. It wasn't, uh, this is an important category for E.P. Sanders. They didn't obey the law in order to enter into the covenant. They were in the covenant and they obeyed the law as covenant people. Mm -hmm. And yet, if that's the case with the law, then the way many people talk about, let's say, Pharisees, or, and and I hear this in such a a bold way as, as people saying, Christians saying, as Jews, or they will say something about Judaism, and they will you know, say, see, Jews had believed you had to follow the Torah to be saved. Um, that, that right there as a set of language assumes some things that Sanders says, no, that's not right. And it's imposing a view in the sense of Christianity and Judaism on the evidence that misreads the evidence itself. So mm-hmm. um, it is important to understand that obeying the law was what Jews did because they were faithful to the covenant. Christians today have a very similar phenomenon and is no different. And that is Christians seek to follow Jesus and to be obedient. That word is the obedience of faith in Romans 1.5. Obedience is a Christian category. They obey the teachings of Jesus. They obey what they believe are are God's prescriptions for Christians 
in the New Testament, in the apostolic literature. They obey these things because they are believers, because they are Christians. If you look from the outside on these two religions, obedience functions the same way in both faiths. So that's yeah, one of I the big that, points Sanders is making. Yeah, I found that fascinating to see that theme come up time and time again. So, well, today we want to focus on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And um, I guess as we get into that, I think it's important to understand some some key players and some key terms in this. Um, and the first, maybe this is kind of backing up a little bit to the Tanaitic, but when you say rabbi, who do you mean by rabbi? What person is that? What office did they hold? What category is that in Judaism? Well, the rabbis, uh, rabbi means my teacher. So it is it is a word used at times in in both Aramaic and Hebrew in the New Testament for uh, for Jesus. So yes, it it refers to a teacher, but it became connected to an official group of teachers whose teachings were in, were written down in a book called the Mishnah, another book called Tosefta. And these are like, uh, almost like um, uh, legal documents. These are like rule books of uh, judges' decisions, uh, theological judges' decisions on how to be fully consistent with obeying the law of the Old Testament. And then these were developed with many, many stories attached to him in what is called the Talmud. And there are two Talmuds, the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. And the Babylonian Talmud is the most famous, and it contains the Mishnah as well. So the rabbis are those teachers in the Jewish world who gave rise to what is called classic Judaism. Good. And then now from there, what we're looking at today are the Dead Sea Scrolls. So tell us a little more about those. Obviously, that was a big discovery uh, in biblical studies when uh, they were discovered, but they were a part of the Qumran community. And um, what do we need to know about the scrolls and that community that put them together? Yeah, I mean, our, our concern is not so much just the history of the Jew, the Dead Sea Scrolls as it is, you know, we're trying to keep an eye on Sanders' great syntheses. Mm-hmm. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the late 1940s um, in the in the caves and hills around a community called Qumran, which is very is right on the edge of the Dead Sea. And there is a community at Qumran. People were passing by this for centuries without spending any time, but suddenly they discovered some scrolls. They started to be sold. People started uh, hearing about them, seeing them reading them, translating them, and uh, it opened up a whole world of scholarship. And um, I came of age as a young professor when all these were were being freshly printed and published. And it is, um, I, I, I believe the Dead Sea Scrolls, as a, as a phenomenon, all these manuscripts, etc., are connected to the Qumran community, and therefore also, I believe they were connected to the Essenes. There, there's quite a bit of debate about this, and some people are pretty strong-minded on this, but I, I adhere to that view, and uh, I changed my mind because it doesn't, it's not that big a deal if I thought the evidence was something else. But the, we discovered all kinds of biblical manuscripts, most of the, in fact, almost all the Old Testament. I, uh, 
I, I don't teach anything on the Dead Sea Scrolls anymore. I think only Esther was not found. I, I could be mistaken on that. Um, and they found um, also all kinds of documents that are sometimes called sectarian documents. A great translation uh, is by Giza Vermesh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. But I use uh, the Erdman's um, two-volume set that has the Hebrew and the English so that I can check the Hebrew words. And uh, it's the Dead Sea Scrolls in English. And there are all kinds of uh, manuscripts about the community, about how, uh, in some ways, they tell stories about how it was formed. Sometimes metaphors are used. They talk about a famous teacher, Moray Tzedek, who um, functioned in very clearly as a great interpreter of Scripture. I know some people who, who would say there are indications uh, that the person, that there was at least a person there who was seen as a Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this is, uh, for many way, in many ways, this is a parallel movement to the Jesus movement and earliest Christianity in the world of Judaism, within the world of Judaism, in which they believe that um, specific fulfillment of Old Testament texts have occurred in the community, uh, in its leaders. Their interpretation is the correct interpretation. They formed a very tight fellowship. Uh, It was a very small group compared to Christianity as it grew in the Gentile world. But... um, there are, there are very many similarities, but Sanders would, has contended uh, without, without any hesitation is that the, and here's a statement that he puts in italics, the, the general pattern of religion that we found in earlier rabbinic literature, now he means by that earlier in the book because it's not earlier than Qumran writings, is also present in Qumran. The emphases on God's choice and on human commitment both reflect the crucial significance of election and membership in the covenant for salvation. Once in the covenant, members took upon themselves to obey its regulations. There are all kinds of funny rules that they had. I mean, they even had rules that if you farted, you got in trouble. <laughs> yeah, Although individual one. rewards for individual ful- fulfillments are mentioned very rarely, the general notion of reward for obedience and punishment for transgression was held. It is reflected especially clearly in the detailed list of punishments for transgressions. Obedience to the commandments, he says, was not thought of as earning salvation, which came rather by God's grace, but was nevertheless required as a condition of remaining in the covenant. And not obeying the commandments would damn. all. Although all humans are sinful, and are seen as such in comparison with God, the explicit sinfulness, which would either keep one out of the community or remove one from it, was conceived as transgressions of commandments. The deeper human sinfulness that is found in all men, including the elect, would be eradicated only at the eschaton. And then he finishes with this, for most transgressions within the covenant, uh, means of atonement were available although some transgressions could not be forgiven. For those outside the covenant, there would be no mercy and forgiveness, but strict requital for their deeds. So that is, that is very common. Uh, this, is a, this is just a summary of Sanders that the, the Judaism of the Tanaitic literature, mm-hmm. covenantal gnomism, 
is characteristic of the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. Yeah, you know, I, I found that fascinating. I think the thing that surprised me the most was the uh, ability in both of these literature to suggest there is reentry to the community if one has sinned and, you know, um, has disobeyed commandments and gone against, you know, God's law in that way, that there is repentance, there is atonement that is available. And it made me wonder, I'm just reading Leviticus in my devotional reading right now, and as it talks about some of the death penalty type of offenses, I wonder how, I haven't seen Sanders handle that at all. I wonder if you got any perspective on that. Maybe I missed it or how the this literature handles those commandments that are so severe that that death penalty is enacted? Well, uh, I think, uh, Chaz, uh, I don't I don't know that Sanders talks about this. Uh, at the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you did something really bad, you got expelled from the community. I don't think they they had capital. They had the capacity or uh, the wherewithal to uh, exact capital punishment, but Jews, as a general rule, believed in capital punishment. You see it in, I would say, you would see this as characteristic of the Jewish faith at that time, because it is rooted in, uh, I guess, Genesis to begin with, and then it is also rooted in the law of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. So, um, I, I, I know I just right now I don't have a detail in my head about the Dead Sea Scrolls requiring capital punishment, but I would say they would probably be stricter on mm-hmm. that law than, uh, say, Philo in Alexandria, Jews in the diaspora, and even with some of the Sadducees or some of the leaders in the city of Jerusalem. So capital punishment is a characteristic of Jewish law. Yeah, but it but the Sanders point still is that there is there is entry back into the community. Yeah, there's there is yeah. still forgiveness and it's um and it's not through merit um or earning your way back in, but it is reenacting the covenant that God has has elected and chosen. Well, and it's invited. it's, uh, it's re- through repentance. Mm-hmm. Uh, forgiveness can be granted, and through a t- uh, sacrificial atonement in the temple, which caused problems for the Dead Sea Scroll community because they had left Jerusalem, but they still believed in this, the adequacy of, eventually, of when God purges the temple, that there will be sacrifices offered that would restore, that would purge the temple and restore people in their relationship with God and, and the temple. So. Uh, it is, Judaism has a, this is as deep as the Old Testament goes, has a feast called the Day of Atonement. So written into the fabric of the Jewish faith is atonement itself, that if you if you turn to God and repent, that, um, that the stains against the temple and the stains against the people will be purged. Yeah. And so to kind of go back to something else that you had said earlier um, in your quote of Sanders, you had mentioned how the Qumran community thought of itself as true Israel. And as the, I don't know if, I don't think you use the word remnant, but that they saw themselves as being um, 
the ones who other Israelites would be invited at the end to um, come to be a part of their true Israel. And I wonder what insight you think this provides for what Paul has to say in Romans 9, 6, and 7, where he talks about, you know, not all Israel is Israel, and the remnant that he talks about in Romans 11, 25, and 26 of, you know, the expansion of Israel to include Gentiles and um just to, to fill in some of that, I, I just found that fascinating, fascinating with this being parallel literature going on at the same time. Well, the, um, Chaz, the, uh, uh, the, there's a clear answer to this. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls probably don't derive from all, they don't derive from all at once, and they don't derive uh, from everybody agreeing on everything. But by and large, everybody agrees in, uh, that the Dead Sea Scrolls believed that the Qumran community, these people thought they were the true Israel mm -hmm. and that all other Israelites were, were either defective or damned and that they were, they would be assigned with the punishment of the Katim, probably the Romans or enemies uh, of the Jews. So uh, like Christianity or like Paul, who, who seems to indicate that the church at some level, at least uh, Jewish believers believed that they were of, of the fulfillment of Judaism, not the eradication of Judaism. Uh, so the Dead Sea Scroll community, the Essenes, thought they were the true Israel. And so there is competition uh, in the first century between groups within the Jewish world who believed that they were the true Israel. Yeah, and so do you, would you put Paul's words in Romans in that similar category of um, competing with seeing themselves as, as true Israel as the Essenes did in Qumran? Yeah, I don't know that Paul is competing with the Essenes consciously, but yes, without question, there is, uh, this is the competition that's going on. The Essenes saw the Sadducees and the Pharisees as compromisers. Uh, most people as compromisers, in fact, they're a pretty rigorous group. Um, like Puritans in the first century, in the, you know, in early American, at, at least some Puritans, uh, whereas uh, Paul uh, sees those who believe in Jesus as the, uh, as fulfillment of, of the Jewish faith. The Jewish hope is looking forward to the Messiah. Paul believes Jesus is that Messiah. And those who are in that Messiah, in Christ, are those who are God's remnant and elected people. Yeah, so when Paul, or when E.P. Sanders says, the Qumran literature reveals a kind of religion which is closer to what surfaces in Christianity um, than is any other form in Judaism. Uh, do you agree with him on that, that this, uh, the examples that we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran literature, that, um, that they have the closest connection to what we see in Christianity? Uh, I think the, the answer to that question is that this is one of the only groups we know this much about. And in some ways there are overlaps. So, so yes, uh, I think that what Sanders says there is that this, this movement of the Essenes, the Dead Sea Scroll community, they were a similar kind of remnant a fulfilled Israel movement in the Jewish world 
as was Christianity. Yeah. And it's just so fascinating just to learn more of the, the history and, and get the colors filled in of, you know, what is going on in this similar time as which the New Testament is written and how that impacts so much of, of what we read. So any other insights uh, from Sanders chapter here or just in general with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Qumran community that would be helpful for us as we um, look into the New Testament and how we read what we see Paul and others saying? Well, um, again, uh, I want to emphasize that these are parallel movements. You're not going to go to the Dead Sea Scrolls and find the source for Christianity. Um, you're going to find in the Essenes or the Qumran Scrolls or the Dead Sea Scrolls, you're going to find a similar remnant-type movement that believed that it was the eschatological fulfillment of Israel's hopes. So there's going to be overlaps. And then, of course, they're going to have teachers and leaders and teachings and readings of Scripture that all point to themselves. And they're going to have fellowship and they're going to have in and out and they're going to have develop rules and social customs and mores, etc. And so all those things overlap. And there's lots of overlaps then in that way, not in the sense that Paul is borrowing insights from Essene type leaders, mm -hmm. but that they are doing similar things. So yeah, to me, uh, Chaz, to close it off, yeah. I would emphasize that it's important for, for um, Christian readers who want students who want to be serious about understanding the Jewish world to read a text like it's called 1QS or the opening community rule for the Dead Sea Scroll community and to read it and understand it, um, even if you don't understand it completely, to get a grip on what this community was like. So I, that, that's where I'd close is read 1QS. You can find it online, I'm sure, and mm -hmm. get a, a good handle on what this community was like. There you go. That would definitely be helpful and enlightening um, to further your study beyond what Sanders has to say. So, um, well, thank you, Scott, for letting me run those questions by you. And um, you, our listeners, thanks as well for joining us this week. I want to encourage you on an opportunity that I think you might be interested in. On Wednesday, March 13th at 1 p.m. Central Time, Scott and I are going to be doing a webinar on reading Romans backwards. Uh, it, it's a, a concept in a book that Scott is working on and um, it's at the publisher right now. And uh, we're going to be talking about some of that and provide an opportunity for you to ask some questions as well as we really look at that community of which Romans was written to. So we hope you look into that. I'm going to include a link in the show notes to um, register for that, as well as uh, if you share it on social media, we're going to be doing a, a drawing on some key resources to understanding Romans that we'll be giving away with that. So um, take a look at all that. Those links are in the show notes, um, but we look forward to joining you next week as we continue our conversation on the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha in Sanders' work and evaluation, um, because all of this is about a bigger conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 